Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, November 17th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topshire with your top stories today. U.S. sources suggest that the missile that killed Poles was Ukrainian. A federal judge blocks the Title 42 border policy. The U.S. Senate advances respect a gay marriage law. McConnell wins Senate GOP leader re-election. Guangzhou sees violent COVID protests. Kuwait hangs seven people in its first executions since 2017. An Israeli oil tanker is hit by a mystery drone off the Oman coast. The FTX Bahamas unit seeks U.S. bankruptcy protection. Tesla says it's $55 billion pay deal to keep Musk engaged and NASA launches Artemis moon rocket. Our first story today takes us to Ukraine, where U.S. sources suggest that the missile that landed in Poland was Ukrainian. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Guardian, Reuters, Ukraine Forum, and U.S. News. After a missile crossed Ukraine's border into Poland late on Tuesday, killing two civilians, three U.S. officials told the Associated Press that preliminary investigations suggested the projectile was an air defense missile launched by Ukrainian forces attempting to stave off a salvo of Russian attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. The incident prompted widespread speculation that the missile was fired by Russia, with some calling for NATO's Article 4 or Article 5 to be invoked. Leaders from the G7 countries were also called into an emergency meeting while the G20 summit was underway in Indonesia. Asked by reporters whether the missile was in fact fired by Russia following the meeting, U.S. President Joe Biden said, There is preliminary information that contests that. I don't want to say that until we completely investigate. But it is unlikely in the minds of its trajectory that it was fired from Russia. On Wednesday, a NATO official speaking with Reuters confirmed that Biden later told allies that the projectile was a Ukrainian air defense missile. Polish President Andrzej Duda said it was probably an unfortunate incident and that there were no grounds to believe it was a deliberate attack. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials have said that Russia's missile attacks within the country on Tuesday hit 15 energy facilities, leaving as many as 7 million people in 18 regions without electricity. Ukrainian officials added that one civilian was killed in each of the regions of Kyiv, Zaporizhia, and Donetsk, while 17 people across the country were injured. They added that the bodies of three civilians who'd been killed earlier were also discovered in Donetsk. Elsewhere, Biden asked Congress to approve an additional $37 billion for emergency aid to Ukraine, with $21.7 billion earmarked for military spending, $14.5 billion for humanitarian aid, and $900 million for health care and support services for Ukrainians living in the U.S. The request comes as Republicans are poised to take control of the House of Representatives after the midterms. The results could become an obstacle to future aid sought by the Democrats. Melissa, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. Here on this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. We do have a couple of narratives to go through here. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative, and it's provided by Guardian. While the incident in Poland is unlikely to trigger NATO's Article 4 or Article 5, it underscores the very real risk of a full-blown Russian-NATO war in the event of an accident or a miscalculation. 
and the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Premature statements from Ukrainian and Western officials that Russia was to blame for the incident in Poland are a deliberate provocation aimed at escalating the war. All Russian missiles had hit their targets precisely. And we also have a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story. There's a 5% chance that a NATO country will invoke Article 5 by December 31st, 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. And in our next story, a federal judge blocks the Title 42 border policy. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, NBC, and Daily Caller. Title 42, the public health emergency measure used to expel migrants who cross into the U.S. illegally, was struck down by a federal judge on Tuesday. Judge Emmett Sullivan of the U.S. District Court for D.C. ruled that the measure, which was adopted during the Trump administration, violates the Administrative Procedures Act. Biden's administration says it will comply with the order. The Trump administration adopted the rule in March 2020, using the COVID pandemic as a rationale to prevent asylum seekers from entering the U.S. More than 2 million people have been turned away since Title 42's implementation. The Department of Homeland Security, or the DHS, has requested a five-week delay to the rollback of the rule to, quote, prepare to transition to processing the migrants at the already backed-up border. Title 42 has been the subject of much debate and legal action in the past year. The most recent judge's ruling is related to a suit brought against DHS by a group of migrants who said getting expelled from the U.S. would lead them to, quote, great harm in January 2021. The left narrative comes from CNN. Title 42 was disguised as a public health order, but was always just an inhumane way to deny legitimate asylum seekers access to the U.S., and it's about time it ended. The U.S. government could have taken other measures, such as letting migrants self-quarantine or ramping up vaccinations, rather than barring them all from entering. Biden is absolutely right to agree with this latest ruling. And that left narrative is followed up by a Republican narrative brought to us by Daily Mail. If you thought the Biden administration's handling of the border was bad before, things are about to get much worse. The U.S. isn't ready for the massive surge of illegal border crossings on the way. This will put Border Patrol agents at risk and make the country less safe as a whole. In our next story, the U.S. Senate advances a Respect for Marriage Act. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Washington Post, NewsBud, Al Jazeera, Fox News, and Reuters. The Respect for Marriage Act passed a significant milestone in the U.S. Senate on Wednesday as lawmakers voted 62 to 37 to prevent a filibuster and advance the law that would write marriage equality into federal law to an up or down vote later this week. All 50 members of the Democratic caucus were joined by 12 Republicans in a vote that had been delayed since July when the House passed the act. A bipartisan agreement had postponed the vote until after this month's midterm elections. If passed, the Respect for Marriage Act would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act and require all public acts, records, and proceedings protected by past Supreme Court rulings related to marriage to be recognized by all states. 
Advocates have urged lawmakers to codify same-sex marriage since the Supreme Court overturned abortion rights related to Roe v. Wade earlier this year, fearing the court could go after marriage equality next. The bill has garnered support from religious groups, with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announcing its support for the law as long as same-sex couples don't infringe on religious groups' right to believe as they choose. The church's support follows an amendment to the bill that protects churches from legal action for declining to provide service for any marriage it opposes. Thank you, Melissa. The Republican narrative spin on this story is written by Town Hall. The Respect for Marriage Act is a Trojan horse that will pave the way to increased federal action and litigation against religious groups under the guise of protecting same-sex marriage rights. It does nothing to actually advance LGBTQ plus freedoms, but does everything to threaten religious ones. And here's a Democratic narrative from Alternet. This bill, a proactive measure to protect same-sex marriage, carefully balances LGBTQ plus rights and religious freedom, as attested by the support it has garnered from members of both groups. Any talk of this act working in opposition to religious rights is just a way for the opposition to rile up its base. Well, that sounds good. You you can get married, just not in our church. I think it also follows under the uh, not-in-my-backyard logic. They can do whatever they want, just as long as they're not in our church. Yes, a NIMBY rule for sure. Turning our attention to political news, Mitch McConnell wins the Senate's GOP leader re-election. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Fox News, CNN, and Daily Wire. On Wednesday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, won a challenge from Senator Rick Scott, the Republican from Florida, for his post, securing another two years as GOP Senate leader. McConnell, the longest-serving GOP leader in Senate history, won the leadership vote 37-10, to 10, with one senator abstaining. Scott, McConnell's first challenger in 15 years, had announced his bid the day before pitching himself as the candidate to change the status quo. The two challengers have publicly feuded over the party's message, outlook, and spending for the 2022 midterms. Former President Donald Trump has blamed McConnell for Republican losses this election cycle, while others have blamed Trump. Spending decisions have played a major role in dividing the party with Scott reportedly spending more than 95% of the committee's record fundraising haul by the end of July 2022. For his part, McConnell has taken heat for pulling television spending from Arizona, where Blake Masters lost his race to Democrat Mark Kelly. Apart from McConnell, the GOP voted for Senator John Thume from South Dakota as whip, Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming as conference chair, Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa as policy chair, Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia as conference vice chair, and Senator Steve Daines from Montana as National Republican Senatorial Committee chair, with Congress beginning on January 3rd. We'll start this round of narratives with a spin from The Federalist. McConnell has proven he can no longer effectively lead the GOP in the Senate. This election cycle, he undermined the party by criticizing the quality of the candidates. He also spent too much on incumbents and shortchanged challengers, leaving Scott to make up the spending deficit. This is a disappointing outcome. And we have a narrative B provided by CNN. 
Knowing he had no shot of upending McConnell, Scott was merely trying to save face for his failures in the midterms. His challenge to the leader was nothing more than an attempt to make McConnell look bad, pass the buck for the GOP's shortcomings, and most importantly, win favor from former President Trump, whose disdain for McConnell is well known. Violent COVID protests rock Guangzhou. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NPR Online News, The Guardian, CNN, Fox News, and The Telegraph. On Monday, following several nights of city residents scuffling with COVID enforcement officers over China's zero-COVID lockdown measures, protesters in the city of Guangzhou overturned police cars, tore down COVID control barriers, and clashed with police in the streets. The violence comes as Guangzhou, an industrial center hub with a population of 19 million, documented more than 6,200 COVID cases on Tuesday. The government began to ease its dynamic zero-COVID policy last week. Guangzhou faces the brunt of a national uptick in cases, though cases have also risen in other large cities like Beijing, Chongqing, and Zhengzhou. The government uses surveillance drones and still mandates quarantines, citing them as necessary for public safety. The images of COVID workers wearing protective medical garb standing aside as barriers fell come after Deputy Director of the Guangzhou Municipal Health Commission, Zhang Yi, said pandemic containment measures will be enhanced, suggesting the possible return of lockdowns. Officials in Guangzhou say they're planning for more quickly constructed hospitals in addition to the existing six hospitals and 20,000 beds in response to COVID infections. J.P. Morgan analysts suggested the infection curve of Guangzhou is tracking the pace of Shanghai's March-April, and the city will become a testing point regarding the government's determination to push for the relaxation of COVID control measures. Thank you, Melissa. Our pro-China narrative on this story is provided by China Daily. With surges in cases popping up throughout the country, the PRC's zero-COVID strategy has proven effective in keeping citizens safe from the virus while simultaneously opening the economy. The current public health policy has been working, but can only be successful if everyone participates. And the anti-China narrative is written by Japan Times. Putting aside the human rights aspect of China's zero-COVID strategy, President Xi's policy is also damaging the country from an economic and public health perspective. Whether or not Xi has successfully pushed the country enough to achieve zero-COVID compliance, people may begin to notice his hypocrisy as the economy shrinks, something he could have avoided if he'd allowed his citizens to learn to live with the virus. Kuwait hangs seven people in its first executions since 2017. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Times of Israel, News, and Citizen. In its first execution in five years, Kuwait on Wednesday hanged seven individuals, including four Kuwaitis, a Pakistani, a Syrian, and an Ethiopian. Two of the seven were women. The state-run Kuna News Agency said all seven had been convicted of premeditated murder though the oil-rich nation has received condemnation from both rights and governmental organizations. The death penalty in Kuwait, introduced in the mid-1960s, is rare compared to other countries in the region, with Saudi Arabia having executed 81 men in one day in March. Prior to the executions, 
Amnesty International urged the country not to proceed on Tuesday, calling it, quote, the ultimate cruel, inhumane, and degrading punishment. With the European Parliament set to vote on a proposal to lift visa requirements for Kuwaitis, the EU also condemned the executions, saying it, quote, will draw the consequences this will have on discussions on the proposal. Among the dozens of executions issued since the 1960s, most for murderers and drug traffickers, Kuwaiti courts have also handed down the penalty to members of the al-Sabah family, which has ruled the country for two and a half centuries. Thank you for laying out those facts, Adam. We've got a couple of spins. The pro-establishment narrative comes from Jerusalem Post. The Middle East is rampant with not only public executions, but executions for nonviolent crimes like drug trafficking, homosexuality, adultery, and religious heresy, a tool used to infuse fear among the public and silence dissent. The international community has a duty to oppose these human rights violations by calling for the total abolishment of the death penalty. And there's an establishment critical narrative provided by Kuwait Times. While the West should continue to condemn the misuse of capital punishment in non-Western states, it shouldn't resort to blackmail, as the EU has done with its threats to Kuwait's visa bid. International law allows capital punishment in certain instances, and Kuwait has sparingly used it for the most severe crimes. An oil tanker is hit by an armed drone off the Oman coast. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, ABC, CNN, the Jerusalem Post, and Radio Free International. A Middle East-based defense official said on Wednesday, on condition of anonymity, that an oil tanker associated with Israeli billionaire Aydin Ofer was struck on Tuesday night by a bomb-carrying drone off the coast of Oman. The Singapore-based Eastern Pacific shipping firm, which was operating the Liberia-flagged oil tanker Pacific Zircon, stated it had been hit by a projectile some 150 miles off the coast of Oman, causing some minor damage to the vessel's hull, but no reports of injuries or pollution. The oil tanker's location was not immediately clear on Wednesday. Satellite data from Tuesday provided by marinetraffic.com showed the vessel in the Arabian Sea after departing Oman's port of Sohar. Israeli officials have accused Iran of being behind the attack, describing it as an Iranian provocation in the Gulf, ahead of the Soccer World Cup in Qatar. The weapon and the target appear to fit a pattern of attacks historically linked to Tehran. Meanwhile, Iran's Supreme National Security Council-affiliated media outlet, Noor News, blamed Israel and its Gulf allies, claiming they targeted the ship to raise tensions and distract Iran and Qatar with marginal events. Recent years have seen increased tensions between Tehran and the U.S. as well as Israel. In 2021, a suspected Iranian drone strike hit the Israeli-associated oil tanker MV Mercer Street off the coast of Oman, killing two people. Thank you, Melissa. We have an anti-Iran narrative, and it's provided by Times of Israel. This is a classic Iranian tactic. Attack a ship using drones, then deny responsibility. This is how the Islamic Republic operates and why the U.S. and Israel must act aggressively. The mullahs in Tehran only understand the language of decisive action. Israel must be prepared to respond to provocations. And the pro-Iran spin comes from Tasnim. 
Tehran anticipated that Israel and its Arab allies would conduct malicious actions during the World Cup. This attack was about media hype and defaming Iran. Israel is facing problems forming a cabinet. This incident is a geopolitical distraction. Melissa, are they actually blaming this on a soccer match? Soccer is some serious stuff, Adam. Yeah, I I guess. You know, some of those clubs get pretty nasty, but uh, dropping a uh, bomb-carrying drone, just to make a point, our team's better. Boom. Yeah, these fans have gone too far. They've gone too far indeed. Turning our attention to financial news, FTX Bahamas unit seeks U.S. bankruptcy protection. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, CNN, Coindesk, and Finance Magnates. In a court filing released Tuesday, FTX Digital Markets, the Bahamas unit of the XTX cryptocurrency exchange, is seeking protection under Chapter 15 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. Chapter 15 is used by foreign debtors to shield themselves from creditors seeking to file lawsuits or to tie up assets in the U.S. FTX filed for bankruptcy on Friday after investors rushed to withdraw $6 billion from the cryptocurrency exchange. As the company faces lawsuits from upwards to 1 million creditors, FTX is also in contract with the U.S. federal attorneys, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Authorities in the Bahamas are also reportedly investigating potential criminal wrongdoing. The company's court filing argues that the U.S. should recognize the Bahama-based unit since one of its clients' accounts held $15,000 at the Holland & Knight law firm in New York. Other parties involved have three weeks to object before the court makes a determination. Amid its latest court filing in the Southern District of New York, FTX has also faced suspensions of their licenses in Australia and Cyprus. The company is also unauthorized to operate in the UK. FTX founder and CEO, now resigned, 30-year-old Sam Bankman-Fried, has vowed to describe, quote, what happened, and that he has sufficient resources, quote, to repay all customers. Thanks for those facts, Adam. We've got a pro-establishment narrative to start off these spins. It comes from CBS. The collapse of FTX shows just how risky it is to invest in cryptocurrency. The U.S. government is justifiably investigating the matter, and it's key to track how the public sector will respond through legislation. Companies like FTX need to be regulated the same way traditional banks are. And Consortium News has provided us with an establishment critical narrative. The pious calls of regulators are disingenuous. Besides the current headlines of bankruptcy financial fraud, and risky investments, FTX's relationship with politicians and governments also needs scrutiny. The multi-billion dollar exchange was used for everything from funding Ukraine's war effort to political campaign donations in the U.S. The public sector got tangled up in this crypto mess. Adam, do you have any cryptocurrency or did you ever dabble? In that area? The closest thing I have to cryptocurrency is still having my arcade tokens from when I was a kid. Ah. How much are those worth now, you think? Oh, they're worth at least 25 cents or, you know, a game of Dig Dug. (laughs) I've got those chocolate-wrapped gold coins. That's about... Ooh, that's a sweet investment. (laughs) In Tesla news, a $55 billion pay deal to keep Musk engaged. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC, Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, CNN, and the LA Times. On Tuesday, the head of Tesla's board of directors, Robin Denholm, testified in a trial challenging a $55 billion compensation plan for CEO Elon Musk. Denholm said she was focused on the results Musk could deliver, not how much time he would commit to Tesla. It comes after board member Ira Ehrenpreis took the stand on Monday, where he stated that the largest executive pay package in U.S. corporate history was determined by the board to keep Musk quote, engaged in the company. Aaron Fries, who chaired the compensation committee, also explained that the board didn't require Musk dedicate himself to Tesla full-time because their focus was on achieving targets rather than compelling him to spend time at the company. Todd Marin, Tesla's former general counsel, also asserted during his testimony on the first day of the trial that Musk didn't dictate the terms of the plan, adding that there were times that the board wanted things he was against. The week-long trial scrutinizing the pay package kicked off in Delaware's Court of Chancery in Wilmington, following a lawsuit filed in 2018 by Richard Tornetta, who, on behalf of Tesla shareholders, claimed the board and Musk had breached fiduciary duties. Under the compensation plan, Musk gets billions when Tesla hits specific market capitalization and operational milestones. To date, he has received more than $52 billion, and the carmaker has achieved 23 out of 24 of the specified milestones. Thank you, Melissa. We have a couple of narrative spins on this, including a nerd narrative later on. Our Narrative A spin is provided by BNN Bloomberg. This compensation plan is clearly excessive. Musk has benefited from his influence over the board's committee, which has falsely claimed that it has no conflicts of interest and been rewarded for his part-time management role at Tesla, largely on the grounds of milestones that had already been achieved when shareholders voted. And Narrative B comes from Tesla Roddy. This compensation plan has granted Elon Musk his fair share of Tesla's success, especially considering he took a high risk to receive a high reward. Though Tesla skeptics ridiculed his decision at the time, Musk's management has led the carmaker to increase its value from $59 billion to $600 billion, achieving almost all his stipulated performance targets. And the nerds of Metaculus have something to say about this story. There's a 47% chance that Elon Musk will be the richest person in the world on December 31st, 2025. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. And in our last story today, NASA has launched its Artemis moon rocket. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Archive, Reuters, and NASA. The American space agency NASA launched its new Artemis moon rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida, early Wednesday morning. The 100-meter-tall vehicle is the agency's most powerful rocket ever launched. This marks the start of NASA's new flagship program following years of delays and billions in cost overruns. Artemis's debut flight carries three test dummies in the Q capsule, Orion, on its three-week flight orbit around the moon. Orion will return to Earth with a splashdown in the Pacific in December. This is the first time in 50 years that NASA has flown a rocket powerful enough to send humans beyond low Earth orbit. The purpose of the flight is to test whether the rocket and capsule will be able to transport humans safely, 
while conducting a number of scientific experiments, including measuring variables such as gravity and radiation exposure. The launch had originally been scheduled for August 29th, but was postponed after one of the four engines failed to cool down. The rocket has since faced nearly three months of fuel leaks, with the latest one being plugged late Tuesday night. NASA is collaborating with commercial and international partners, such as Elon Musk's SpaceX and the space agencies of Europe, Canada, and Japan, aiming to eventually establish a long-term lunar base that would enable it to launch trips to Mars. NASA has identified the lunar South Pole as a potential area for astronauts to land as part of the Artemis III mission, scheduled for 2025. That will be the first time astronauts will set foot on the moon since NASA's Apollo 17 mission in 1972. Thank you for that very cool outer space story, Adam. Here are some spins on the matter. The first one is coming from Wired magazine. Eventually, NASA will return astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972, including the first woman. As part of a long-term plan for a moon-to-Mars exploration in the next 20 years, the Artemis Project is an exciting test to see how close humanity is to reaching much further than the moon in the decades to come. And Politico is providing us with a narrative B. Despite the long-term plan for the Artemis program this decade, only now is NASA creating a single management structure to handle its entirety. Whilst the intentions are exciting, there has clearly been a lack of administration that may have been left too late to fix before the planned personnel moon landing in 2025. And we'll end today's program with a nerd narrative from our folks at Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that NASA will next land astronauts on the moon by August 2nd, 2029. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, November 17th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. <laughs>